you can find your way back to your seats. I don't have to preach on my birthday. I get to preach on my birthday, right? That's how that goes. Actually, you guys are doing me a favor this morning because, as many of you will know, what you got to do on your birthday around here is go to Joe's Real Barbecue uh, to get that $10, you know, off, and then you can go to Liberty Market right across the street for dessert. This is how you game the system. And uh, so we're going to be doing that right after the church service this morning. You've, you've already invited me out to the East Valley, so it's, e- it's a lot easier. And if you want to join us, by all means, we, c- we can have a little Joe's Real Barbecue party afterwards in Gilbert. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Jude. Jude, it's near the end of the Bible, go all the way to Revelation, and then switch back a few pages to the book of Jude. You can go ahead and crease out that page. Uh, you know, you wrinkle it up a little bit so it doesn't look like you haven't not been there in a while. Um, Jude. Who knows anything about the book of Jude? That's a, uh, it's actually a book that's being studied a lot more um, recently. But uh, for the most part, many of us like, have no idea that this book is in here, and we've kind of ignored it a long time. In fact, I'm guessing that when I say Jude, you're probably more likely to think of a Beatles song than you are to think about the book in the Bible. Of course, I'm referencing Hey Jude by Paul McCartney, written in 1968. And uh, there's actually some weird similarities between the song Hey Jude and the book of Jude, if you'll permit me stretch it a little bit. Um, like the song, I don't know if you know this or not, Paul McCartney wrote that song in 1968, uh, and he says that the, book, that the song is about um, John Lennon's son, uh, Jules, and kind of comforting him through uh, a painful divorce that John Lennon was going through, and so he says, I changed it from Jules to Jude, and that's, uh, that's what the song is about. But many people have uh, contested that over the years and said, no, actually, we think it's about one of these relationships that Paul McCartney was in, or uh, some have even said maybe it's about uh, the relationship between himself and John Lennon. So we don't really even know who the original audience of that song was supposed to be in a similar way. We don't know Uh, who the original audience of the book of Jude is. It's one chapter long, 25 verses long, one chapter, and we don't actually know uh, who it was originally sent to. But what's very clear is from the very beginning of the early church, the, uh, the church father said, this is scripture, this belongs with Paul, this is God's word to us. If I'm gonna stretch it a little bit, one more comparison to the song. Uh, Famously, Paul McCartney says, you take a bad song and you what? You make it better. And that is, in essence, what Jude does in this book. It's kind of a rough book for the first 19 verses. As he's talking about these uh, false teachers and how to avoid them and uh, get them out of the church. And then, for the last five verses, he turns to the people of God and he gives them this encouragement. He gives them a benediction. And he says, but you're different. And I want to encourage you in a different way. And so he takes the bad song and he makes it better. Jude, verse 20, says this and following. It should be on the screen and in your bulletin as well. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment 
stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We were, Becca and I were, were watching uh, some Netflix a few weeks ago, and uh, we landed on this comedy special, uh, which is funny in and of itself. We don't watch a lot of comedy, but there's this Netflix comedy special. We were watching this. We just kind of flipped through it, watched a few moments. I don't even know if, you know, I can't vouch for all the content in it or anything like that. We were just flipping through, and we land on this guy, and all I remember about this guy, I don't even remember his name, but he had this one-liner that just cracked me up so much. I just couldn't stop laughing. So he, he stands up, and he's got his list of jokes. He's actually just holding the list in front of him of, of his jokes he's going to do. Uh, and <clears throat> he kind of warms up the crowd for a second, and he says, uh, anybody older than 30 in the house? And, you know, he got, got some response, woo, woo, you know, yeah, over 30. It's my birthday. I'm over 32. Woo, you know, he warms them up. And, uh, and then he just delivers this one question, one liner, and now that I've built it up, it's not even going to be that funny to you, but um, he, he says, anybody older than 30 in the house? And then he says, do you remember when you were the future? <laughs> I just about died. It was so funny to me. That was it. He just, he, and then he moved on to the next joke. <laughs> do you remember when you were the future? I think that is so genius. We're the joke those of us who are over 30. We're the joke. We're the punchline, right? Why is that funny? Because you realize when you get older that your life is not as dramatic or upward moving or um, successful in some ways than you anticipated when you were younger. I know we've probably got a couple of uh, high school teachers in the house this morning, and uh, you have my greatest respect. I, I think about this sometimes. I think about the high school teacher who listens to every graduation speech, right? Every speech where this is the generation, this one right here, that's going to change the world. And every generation is the generation that's going to change the world. And if you're a young person this morning, you know, we believe in you, and you are the future. That, that is absolutely true. But what's often caught up in that notion of you are the future is this idea that my life is going to be like a graph, and it's just going to be one kind of upward movement. It's going to be smooth. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to work my plan. I'm going to figure it out. And you realize, after some time, maybe it's when you're not quite 30 yet, that you being the future was not as dramatic as you thought it was going to be. And what you actually have in your life is, is not this, this graph of upward mobility and movement. It's just, it's a jagged picture. Sometimes you get things that you're like, I didn't expect this. And then sometimes you're falling way behind. But it's a stumbling, fumbling kind of thing. You realize that the future is now, and it's different than I thought it would be. I've stumbled a lot. There was a path. I've fallen off of it. There was expectation, maybe expectation that you put on yourselves, maybe expectation that someone else put on you, your parents or whatever, a mentor, and there's that expectation, you've fallen short of that expectation. 
There's a plan, and you have deviated from it. I call that I'm-not-where-I-should-be syndrome. I think it's inflicting most of us in this room. I'm not where I should be. My life is a lot more stumbling and fumbling than I thought. So I want to talk about that this morning with Jude. How do we deal with I'm-not-where-I-should-be syndrome in ourselves and others? In other words, how do we deal with the fact that we're mostly just stumbling through life? One thing after the next. And Jude actually blesses us this morning. He gives us a benediction. There's a benediction for that. Like there's an app for that. You know, there's a benediction for that feeling. When you realize that you're just stumbling through life. What Jude chose us this morning, I want to answer that question. How do we deal with I'm not where I should be syndrome? Two things. First of all, you have to know where you are. And secondly, you have to move toward love. Know where you are and move toward love. So first, you have to know where you are. When I, when I talk about stumbling this morning, I'm talking about it in the spiritual sense. I think we can apply it to different areas, right? We can say, hey, you know, I, I'm not where I want to be in my career, or I'm not where I thought I should be with my family life or my personal life. But what I'm talking about this morning is, where are you spiritually? Do you know where you are? Spiritually speaking, you're probably stumbling in some ways. Jude loves uh, sets of three. There's, there's multiple sets of three throughout his little short book. And what he gives us is three ways that you may be stumbling this morning to locate where you are. First, he says, you could be doubting. You could be doubting. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Doubt could be the way that you are stumbling this morning. You feel like, I'm not where I should be because I should be believing stronger than I'm believing this morning. That's where I should be, and I'm not there. You're doubting. What does that word doubt mean? That word doubt there means, literally, I love this, having an argument within oneself. That's what doubt is. There's something going on inside of you. There's this truth, but then there's this reality, and you're trying to... You're trying to make them work together. You're having an argument within yourself that's doubt. And I want to normalize this for us this morning because Scripture talks about it. For those of us who doubt, for those of us who struggle and we're trying to make sense of two things in our minds, whatever those things may be when it comes to our faith, Scripture says this is a normal part of the Christian walk. Doubting will at least be an occasional, if not regular, part of your Christian walk. This is just true. Not true necessarily for every person, but many, many people stumble because we doubt. And what does Scripture say to do with those who doubt? Have mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Literally, have compassion at heart. Have compassion on those who are stumbling in this way. This is so important for us to do well. I mean, we see this everywhere. I have a friend, a very close friend, grew up with, and uh, he, was, he was in a Sunday school. This is in Mississippi, uh, and, and the Bible Belt, and it was a, you know, this, this church that was very churchy in a lot of ways. And um, he's going to the Sunday school class. I don't know what they're talking about. Maybe it's science and the Bible or something. Uh, and 
the, the leader presents it in such a way, and then this guy raises his hand and asks a question about that. It doesn't make sense to him. He wants to challenge a little bit, and he, so he asks the question. And the way he describes it is, he feels everybody turn in their desks and look at him. Like, we don't ask those kinds of questions here. And the teacher says basically the same thing. We don't ask those kinds of questions here. And he walked away from the church for almost a decade. We do ask those questions here. We do argue within ourselves here in the church. We do seek the truth. We don't use it as an excuse to walk away. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But we have mercy on those who doubt. You could be doubting this morning. Secondly, you could be sinning, caught in sin. This is the way you're stumbling. And you, you're thinking to yourself, I should, I should be beyond where I am because I continue to sin in these ways. Jude says this at the end of verse 22. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What do we do with ourselves or others when we're caught in sin? What do we do? Again, he says the same thing, but with a twist. Show mercy with fear to those who are caught in sin. Show mercy with fear. We don't kick people out because they sin. All of us are sinning this morning. We just confessed our sin together. We have mercy on those who sin. None of us are in the right place where we should be. None of us, all of us are stumblers. All of us are not in the place where we should be when it comes to living out our faith in a perfect way. And so we have mercy. It's a mercy mixed with fear. What does that mean? Fear of what? What he's talking about there is saying we have mercy, but, but we're, we're careful because there's a danger that we could be sucked into someone's sin and there's a danger that we could be sucked into say, to calling not sin, what God has called sin. And so when it comes to those who are caught in sin, we need to be careful to not alienate them and not draw ourselves in as well. That's what he means. Have mercy, though. That's the first thing. But be careful, is what he's basically saying. But no matter what, if you find someone who's doubting in the church, who's sinning in the church, what the response, the first response is have compassion on that person mixed with some fear. It's the same thing that Jesus demonstrates for us for the woman who was caught in adultery. John chapter 8, do you remember that story? She's caught in adultery and they, they bring her out to Jesus and they want to stone her. And what does Jesus say? He who has, is without sin cast the first stone. And everybody walks away. And then he says to the woman, what? Go and sin no more. See, his first response was compassion. Have mercy on those who are caught in sin. But then go and sin no more. Hate even the garment stained by the flesh. That's a reference to the Old Testament there of, of cleanness. Like, there is sin. Sin makes us impure. It does. It separates us. But how do we deal with that? We have to have mercy with one another. Many of us are doubting and sinning. And this is where we are. And there's a feeling, maybe, that I should be more advanced in my faith than I am right now. 
I shouldn't have these doubts. I shouldn't have this sin at this point. But it's where you are. I may have told you this story before, but when I was young, my family loves to make fun of me for this story. We were at a mall, um, and I was like seven or eight years old, walked up to the little kiosk map area. Of course, that has all the stores listed on the map, and a big red dot that says what? You are here. And I famously said in that moment, how do they know where we are? The mind readers? And my parents gently said, you wouldn't be able to read it if you weren't here. They know where you are, right? (laughs) Do you know where you are? Spiritually speaking, can you identify it and can you be okay with it for the time being? It's okay sometimes to say, I'm a baby Christian in this area. I think a lot of damage sometimes gets done by us saying, I should be farther, and so then I have to present this image to people that I am farther than where I am. Some, what would it look like for us just to say, yeah, I've heard a lot of sermons. I still don't even know how to read the Bible, okay? What if we were to say that to one another? What if we were to say, I just don't understand this tension in Scripture, and we just said it out loud, rather than like being okay with smoothing it over. The point here is this. God has mercy on us with where we are. And we need to learn how to have mercy on each other with where we are. Because we doubt and we sin. And we especially need to have mercy because there's a third danger. He says you need to watch out for the stumbler, not just those who are doubting and sinning, but some go even farther and they give up. They're giving up. Verse 23 in the first part says this, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Sometimes in our doubt and our sin, we remove ourselves so much from God and from community that we are literally separating ourselves and we're walking away from the truth. Jude says, I want to snatch you back from walking into that fire. And I want to say the same thing to you this morning. If this is you, if you're, you're feeling like you're walking away because of your doubt or because of your sin or because of anything else, don't walk away from this. Doubting and sinning is okay within the context of the church. Don't use it as a way to walk away from him. I used to say this to our students all the time when I was a youth pastor here. Don't leave. It's okay. Have your doubts. Express your doubts. Don't leave. Do you think that it's easier on the outside than here to deal with the hard questions of life? If you think that's true, you're mistaken. The only thing that changes is now you don't have a context for anything, and now you have to switch worldviews to something else. Don't do that. Stay here, even with your doubts and your sin. You're stumbling. You know where you are. I love how Jude gives a remedy to this. Secondly, this morning, know where you are. The remedy is the same for everyone. Move toward love. Move toward love. He mentions four things in the first part of this passage. but There's actually just one main one. So he says, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy 
of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He says, do those things. You're building your faith. You're praying in the Holy Spirit. You're keeping yourself in the love of God, and you're waiting on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one main one in there, and then he situates the other three underneath those because he loves three, right? The main one is this, the main imperative there, the main command, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. No matter how you are stumbling, we have to move toward God's love. And the other three describe how we do that. First, by building. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's an architectural metaphor there. He's saying you have to build on your faith. On the, literally on the edifice of your faith. You have this faith and you need to build on top of it. What does he mean by that? I don't think he means there uh, your personal faith, like your, your, uh, your personal belief, like how strong will you believe that what we're doing right now is real or whatever. What he's saying is the faith, as in big picture, the faith. The same way that he described it earlier in the book of Jude, he says the faith once delivered to the saints. This is the body of belief that we are doing and acting out right here together, that we are structuring our worship services on the the, the Apostles' Creed, the, the faith that we believe that there's God who exists in three persons, but one God. The fact that Jesus came and did all this person, his person was important in his work, and that we now have the Holy Spirit and we believe in the church. He's talking about the faith delivered to us by which we are saved. He's saying, build yourselves up in that faith. How? By being together, by doing what we're doing right now, not neglecting what we're doing right now. That's why I say stay, don't leave in your doubts and your sins because what we do here is we build together the church of God. And it also is individual though. It means that we are doing practices that strengthen our faith. That we understand what it is that we believe. That we actually engage intellectually in, in the scriptures and we, um, we do things that promote a heart towards God. We build ourselves up on top of this foundation that is our faith. No matter if you're doubting or you're sinning, one way that you can move toward the love of God is by building yourself up in your faith. Secondly, he says, by praying in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? This means that we're moving towards the love of God by being in His presence and offering prayer to him that is not just, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. It's in the Holy Spirit means it's, it's by God's design. He's telling us what his will is, and so we're trying to follow out not my plan, not God's wonderful plan for my life, but how can my life reflect his plan? I'm guided by the Holy Spirit. When we pray like that, when we pray with our hands open, we move towards the love of God. We keep ourselves there. Because then our lives are not about us and about how stumbling and fumbling we are, but they're about what God is doing in the world. Thirdly, waiting. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Did you know that waiting, spiritual waiting, is where we learn to love God. I know this relates because all of us are waiting on something. 
We're waiting to be delivered from pain. We're waiting on a spouse for God to give us. We're waiting to be delivered from a family situation. We are waiting on something. We're waiting on a better career opportunity. And there's a leaning in moment where we have to say, I want this. This is where I thought I should be. This is where I want to be, and I'm not there yet. And in that waiting, that's where we meet God and we grow in our love for him because we see that he's the one who ultimately who will provide what we need. I want to ask you this morning, tell you actually, because this is a command from Scripture, keep yourselves in the love of God. It's not a suggestion. What is one thing that would keep you in the love of God? What is one thing that would move you towards him if you have doubts, if you're sinning, if you are tempted this morning to give up? What is one thing that would keep you in the love of God? Would move toward that. Even if it's the most basic thing, even if it's the simplest thing, you don't have to be all complicated about it. You can move toward the love of God if it is one verse that you are clinging to right now, that's, that you're clinging to in the season of doubt. You stay on that verse. You stay on that 10 minutes that you have with the Lord before work. You stay there and you pray that God would increase your love for him. One of, the hard, one of the worst things that we can do is wait till we're more advanced to start. This is what we're so tempted to do, isn't it? To wait till I'm a, in a different place. When I'm not doubting so much, when, I, when I'm not sinning so much, then I'll really hit my stride in the future. That's a dangerous way to think. Because we're always stumbling and fumbling. Our lives do not ever look like that. We'll never reach the place where we're just moving forward. I was having a conversation uh, a couple weeks ago with a man at Panera Bread Company. I was just there finishing up a sermon, and uh, he, he approached me and saw my Bible out and started talking. It's been about 20, 25 minutes. Um, and he had all these questions about faith, and he considered himself a believer. He hadn't been to church in years and years and years, but um, he had these questions. like, so how do you read the Bible, you know? And, and, so, and then he got out his Bible. He actually had a Bible in his backpack, and I was like, He's like, I start, I start in Genesis. I get so bogged down, you know. Um, and I said, hey, that's, that's a very common, man. This, you know, why don't you start with the, the Gospel of John? A lot of people say that they start in the Gospel of John. So, we, so he turns to the Gospel of John, and then he's like reading the first verse, and he's like, but what does this mean? And, you know, uh, so I do my best to explain it. He's like, and how do you pray and also read the Bible at the same time? Like, and so it just went like this, forever and ever. Like, um, and uh, I'm having mercy on, on him who doubts, right? I'm, I'm, I am, I'm engaging with everything he's saying. At some point he had to leave. He closes his Bible and puts it away, and he leaves. He hadn't read anything, right? He hadn't engaged in anything. Uh, and this is the temptation that we have. I have all these questions. I, I want to know what's the best way to do my spiritual life, whatever that might be. We want to know everything before we move toward anything. Scripture says, keep yourself in the love of God. Move towards it. What will keep you in the love of God for this season? Whatever this season may be, it's hard stuff, good stuff. What is this season and what will keep me in the love of God? 
Because I promise you won't get to the point where you won't stumble. You won't, will not get to the point where it feels like you are hitting your stride completely. We stumble. This is what we do. We're a fallen humanity. We're broken. We are people, by definition, who stumble. This is what Scripture says. And that's why the benediction that closes out this book is so very important. Because we are stumblers. And there's nothing that we can do about that. But Jesus does something about that. That's what it says. Verse 24, hear this benediction, receive it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. The fact that you are a stumbler doesn't matter in the eternal sense because Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling. You will keep stumbling. You will keep moving forward and and going backwards in this kind of motion. But Jesus will keep you from stumbling ultimately. This is what he loves to do. This is his preferred way. He uses the foolish things in the world, that's you and me, to shame the wise. He uses stumblers. He he glories in the fact that we stumble and then we depend on him for our, our lives and our eternal life. And I love the picture that Jude gives us here. He's he's able, it says, to keep us from stumbling. God is. The picture there is that he's holding us up. He's holding our back. As we keep stumbling forward, we keep moving, we're tripping, and we're, we're backing up, he's holding on to us. And he keeps us from stumbling all the way to the end. And it says, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. That just, that word there means props you up, all right? You get the picture? He's carrying you the whole way, keeping you from stumbling, and then he plops you (laughs) in front of his presence. What is his attitude right now? Is he saying to you, man, I'm so glad that's over. It's really annoying to keep you up this whole time. Now, here, now you're in heaven. Now you, you won't stumble anymore. Finally, is that his attitude? No, he's able to present you the presence of his glory, with great joy. That word joy there is used in Acts chapter 2 where the the people are meeting together, the church is exploding, and people are gathering together and they have glad and generous hearts, that word glad there. They are so happy to be together. It's hospitality. That's the word he uses here. He says he's able to present you, plop you in front of his glory with great joy. He's glad you're there in his presence. He's glad that he's held you up this whole time. And you finished the race, not because you didn't stumble, but because ultimately he kept you from doing that. This is so important for us because we need a way to live life where it's not dependent on me stumbling or not stumbling. Don't we? It's so fragile. I'll close with this. A couple of months ago, I was actually going to a Barrio Nuevo paint day in South Phoenix. We're going to paint a house. And like I do every time I do that, uh, throw my ladder in the, the back of my truck, 
um, and it sits in there. I've never had any problems with this whatsoever, so I throw the ladder back there. I go on the interstate, and it's, it's been fine the zillion times that I've done this. This time was different. <laughs> Put the ladder in there, and for some reason it wasn't as secure. And so I hit the interstate, and I go around the Broadway curve. You guys know what I'm talking about? On I-10, right? There's a couple of different ways that weirdly Phoenix highways curve, right? One of them's the Broadway curve, which I now call the, the Broadway that leads to destruction. <coughs> I think that's what that verse is about, Scripture. Because why would any interstate do that? I mean, it's just it's weird. Come around the corner on the Broadway curve, the ladder slides out the back, lands on the interstate. Pull over. My son's in the back seat, and I watch in horror as a motorcyclist runs over it long ways. Right, runs over the ladder, like, and it's done just like that, and he's gone. He didn't. He didn't fall off. He just kept going. He looked back, and then he just kept. He didn't even pull over. And I had to run out in the middle of the traffic on that curve and um, pull that ladder back in. And it's just, I had a pit in my stomach the rest of the day, as you can imagine. As I think about, maybe I wouldn't even be here this morning, you know, with you guys. Maybe I would be in a lawsuit, wrongful death lawsuit, for not securing a ladder. I mean, it wasn't any different than any other time, but it had to have been in some way. Maybe a little slight jerk of the wheel. Maybe I didn't push it all the way back. Maybe there was an inch there, and it was just enough of a fulcrum to throw it off. I don't know. The point is, If I'm dependent on me not messing it up, then what we're doing with life is extremely, extremely dangerous and fragile. And so I'm grateful that there is one who is able to keep me from stumbling from little small mistakes that I make that cause other people pain or that bring about destruction in some kind of way. There is a God who is in control of that, and He keeps me from stumbling to the end. And even if there is hardship in my life, there is seasons of doubt and sin and, and a temptation to walk away from Him that I'm not depending on myself for that. I'm clinging to Him, keeping myself in the love of God. But I love how He says you keep yourself in the love of God, but hey, when you reach the end, it's only because you were kept. He's able to keep you from stumbling. And that motivates me to then move toward him in greater love. To take a step towards his love. And away from doubt, away from sin, away from a temptation to walk away, and to see that he is the only good thing that's worth giving my life to. Let's pray.